0: Hello, and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast, the podcast where we bring up-to-date historical research to you in an accessible and digestible way. The History with Jackson podcast is presented by Past and Present Media, the home of accessible history. Now, today in the podcast episode, guys, we speak to Andrew Long, who is a historian and author of several amazing books. And in this episode today, we touch on, you know, spies espionage the cold war cold war context around germany and berlin it's a really interesting conversation and i learned so much from and i know you guys are really going to enjoy it so without further ado we're going to jump into messages from our supporters that really help history jackson do what it does and then we'll be jumping into the podcast episode with andro i hope you enjoy this episode thank you very much for listening guys and sit back and enjoy now the Bean Around Coffee sponsor this episode of History of Jackson and if you know me you know I love coffee and the Bean Around is my daily drink of coffee and I grab it online or in the store. If you want to grab yourself some of this amazing coffee head to thebeanaround.com and use the discount code HWJ the little symbol and the bear 10 for 10% off any coffee purchases. That is thebeanaround.com and HWJ and the Bear 10 for 10% off. Now, here at History of Jackson, I really enjoy bringing different history content to you every month. And one place that I get my history content from is Accessible Art History, the podcast. This is a podcast for you if you are fascinated by the history of art and culture, and you want to learn more about works of art, famous artists, or exciting archaeological discoveries. Accessible Art History aims to provide to you free, quality art history content for anyone who is curious. It is committed to history, knowledge, content, and having fun whilst learning. I really enjoy learning my art history from Accessible Art History, the podcast. So, if you want to learn more about art history, head to Accessible Art History, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast player that is accessible art history the podcast hello and welcome to the history of jackson podcast i hope you're all doing okay today we are speaking to historian and author andrew long all about his book secrets of the cold war espionage and intelligence operations from both sides of the iron curtain how are you doing andrew
1: i'm doing very well thank you thanks for having us on
0: no, it's absolutely brilliant to speak to you, and I, I really, really enjoyed this book. So I'm I'm looking forward to really getting stuck into the different topics that you touch in it, uh, and and helping everyone learn more about this secret dark arts of the Cold War.
1: It's a it's a fascinating area. I mean, you, when you start to scratch the surface and see what was going on for such an extended period of time, um, you know, most wars thankfully are very short and sharp. Um, the cold war lasted for four, dec- four decades and the stuff that was going on in the background throughout that time was really um intense and not really understood by the general public because most of it was un- you know in in the shadows it was the secret world so um i had a lot of fun trying to unearth some of these stories and also what i found really interesting was how they a lot of them were interconnected um, and that sort of got my me questioning, trying to understand how it all fits together. So, yeah.
0: And you can definitely tell whilst reading it that you really enjoyed uh, writing and researching for the book. But I, I just wanted to ask you firstly, what was your inspiration for, for writing this book?
1: Well, I sort of um, began writing... Um, or about 2015, 2016, that time, um, started off as like an amateur armchair historian, and then I started making some notes, and then I thought, okay, hang on a second, this could fit together in a book, um, and pitched it to a couple of publishers, and they said yes, amazingly, so, um, but I I focus on the Cold War, that's my area of of interest, Um, I'm not an academic, I'm a lapsed marketing guy, but I'm Um, learning new stuff every day it's um it's it's fascinating but the cold war was mostly fought in the shadows yes there were very there were some very sharp overt conflicts vietnam korea for example they they were cold war conflicts but for the over the period of time that the cold war lasted let's say 1945 through to say 1994 that's that's my interpretation of the cold war other people will have different interpretations but 45 to 94 over that time um it was fought in the shadows and what i was finding is that or what i was seeing in my research was that um both sides were putting a lot of time and effort energy money into trying to obtain intelligence On the opposition and the whole idea was to give them an advantage in in a a future conflict and of course that future conflict would have probably been world war three um and that meant that the intelligent intelligence collection agencies um who we'll talk about in, in a minute the spies and the technologies developed like really fast and it became a real core element of the um the cold war and, and you can't understand the cold war um uh, we were saying before we went on on air but we can't really understand uh the cold war without understanding stalin well i i tried to look at communism as well because i thought that was a very important thing but also um trying to understand espionage because it, it was at the very heart of the cold war
0: and i i really agree with that point there is you you have to understand not only stalin but but communism in this as well because there was there was two distinct systems one of which we understand because we live in but another one that is quite difficult to get your head around and grasp because we have no experience of living under communism or communist regimes now you you mentioned there about espionage units and, and services you talk a lot obviously because the book about espionage about these different secret services um, that operate during the Cold War would you mind detailing you know what these are and, and what some of their roles are It's a sort of
1: baffling number of agencies, to be be honest, um, because it was a mixture of what they call HUMINT, H-U-M-I-N-T, which is human intelligence, which is probably what you and I would understand as spies, you know, guys creeping around, you know, pinching bits of information, human um, intelligence. But there was also signals intelligence, which is basically... um, intercepting phone calls, radio messages, that sort of thing. And then later on, as technology moves forward, there's electronic intelligence, ELINT. So you've got humint, SIGINT, and ELINT. And there's a few others as well, but these are the most of them. And the electronic intelligence is is basically um, picking up um, the enemy's radar transmissions and things like anti-aircraft um r- radar, if you pinpoint where the radar is coming from, then you can target it to destroy the anti-aircraft. Uh, you know, that, that that's how that works. And that was happening all the time over the over the years as the technologies developed. Um the three main perpetrators I talk about in the book are the Soviets, the Americans, and the British. But every, it's fair to say, every NATO and Warsaw Pact country had their own intelligence infrastructure. And To a a greater or lesser extent, they talk to each other, not necessarily all the time, but enough to, um, you know, obviously keep this intelligence um, machine going. So in the UK, we had um, SIS, Secret Intelligence Service. Now, that's what they're called. Um, Everybody calls them MI6, uh, but actually they don't call themselves MI6. They call themselves SIS. Um, They were only sort of in the public domain if you like relatively recently you know in the 90s but um, their job is foreign intelligence so they are the that's the James Bond if you like world and um, so that's them getting intelligence on other countries sometimes our friends sometimes our enemies <laughs> um, then you have MI5 on the domestic intelligence and where it sort of overlaps for me is the, the counter inter, counterintelligence work so basically catching Enemy spies, so that's MI5, and then we have GCHQ, Government Communications Headquarters, which is down in Chel- Cheltenham, um, and their job is to intercept uh SIGINT. Generally, ELINT tends to be a military task. So basically, you have um people tracking enemy electronic emissions, and so that's more of a military thing rather than a, a pure intelligence <clears throat> um in parallel with the spooks there was a huge military in there is a, a huge military intelligence operation run out of the, of the uh, ministry of defense so there's, there's a, a, a massive organization there um in the us they had the cia um on foreign intelligence most people will be familiar with that the fbi on domestic and again counterintelligence so similar parallel to mi6 an MI five, and they had the NSA, which is um, the uh, National Security Agency on Sigint, um, and it, a very similar setup. There was a parallel military structure, um, but a load more. I mean, there's, the Americans have so many different agencies looking at different bits and bobs. In the Soviet Union, um, the most famous intelligence arm that you'll, everyone will have heard of is the KGB, but it was only called that from 1954. Um, it went back uh, as far as the revolution so 1917 they had the Cheka the C-H-E-K-A and that was set up and they were responsible for internal security primarily uh, repressing the civilian um, population keeping them under control uh, suppressing any opposition quite brutally in many cases but also responsible for foreign intelligence um so as i said they were formed in 1917 And then over the years um as moscow reorganized and as the, the power bases shifted so did the um, name over the door nkvd uh, m- many people would have heard of um ogpu nkgb mgb all these different initials pretty much the same organization with perhaps different people at the top a slightly different emphasis but it was the same core um, Czechist uh, organisation. And then, um, well, the NKVD in particular were responsible for Stalin's brutal purges, um, uh, and the effort, the intelligence collection only really settled down after Stalin's death, and Khrushchev was manoeuvring himself into the top spot. Um, Stalin liked to ensure that his intelligence officers never got too comfortable. That was the uh, one of his um, biding um, objectives and he deliberately built conflict into the system Um, so he established a parallel intelligence agency led by the military which was the GRU Um, so what you had was the GRU and the KGB let's call it the KGB because it's easier than remembering all those other acronyms Um, and they fought over territory they fought over agents and they fought over secrets um, and this went on right through the cold war um after the collapse of the soviet union um the kgb was split into two so they have this svr which is um the foreign intelligence and they have the ss fsb on domestic um and the gru uh, it's now called the gu um pretty much carried on, <laughs> they carried on quietly in the background. It should be remembered um, that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin was a KGB officer. Um, and there's a famous expression that once a Czechist, always a Czechist. Um, and um, it, you can see that many of the initiatives coming out of Moscow now that are going on, perhaps with, in, on the international stage to do with Ukraine and so on, um, they're coming straight out of the KGB, play, KGB playbook. Some of the techniques date back to, to the checker, which is extraordinary. But that's, that's really how this um, intelligence landscape is relevant to, to, to today.
0: And what I find most fascinating there is that just the, the sheer confusion within that Soviet system of, you know, who's, who's looking after what, whose agent is whose, and so on. Um, and I, I just want to ask, you know, why were these two different agencies operating at the same time in in different nations, like the UK and the US?
1: What's um, amazing is, yeah, with all that chaos, with that conflict going on, um, that they managed to achieve so much. Um, so, that, that you know, I mean, that's one of the striking things that that, that I, I see. Um, basically, the KGB and the GIU operated all over the world um in the us and the uk and they competed and they fought over assets um in theory um the kgb was the more senior of the two they they would normally win an argument uh, for resources or over an agent but um stalin ravaged his society at all levels government um industry and the kgb and he purged thousands and thousands of officers, so the the the, the people doing the purge in turn got purged Um, and that took out huge um, levels of um, expertise so when that happened the GRU were ready in the wings um, to take over the agents and the networks so that was quite an important sort of uh, redundancy if you like Um, and then also in terms of redundancy when a network got broken up when the counterintelligence people did their job and arrested all the, the agents, it helps to have a second agency in the wings. And, and that worked. Exactly that happened at the end of the Second World War. And we'll talk about that in a minute, um, how the um, atomic spies all got, most of them got arrested or uh, escaped. Um, but that when that happened, there was a massive hole in the intelligence operation and the GIU were just able to go. Okay, we'll take over. So that that's how it worked.
0: And it's, it's great that they could work, work together, kind of in a way to to make sure those gaps are filled, so that you're not losing out in those intelligence battles.
1: Not sure they worked, what... not sure they work together, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, they, they, they worked in. Let's say they worked in parallel.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's probably a better way of explaining <laughs> that. You then you mentioned you mentioned something there about the the atomic spies, and I just wanted to touch. You know, you know, what's the what was the main aim then at Soviet espionage of of this period?
1: Well, uh, as I think I might have said, it's all about gaining an advantage over the competition. That, that that's what it was all about, and that could be prior notice of plans. What are they? What are their intentions? What are they going to do? It could be gathering compromat, which is compromising material on a prominent individual to use for blackmail. I mean, that went on. It still goes on, um, and um, all that was true for the Soviets back in the day and the Russians today. But before the Second World War, um, the Soviet Union was lagging behind the rest of the world in terms of science, technology, high tech. They were living through this disastrous central planning. Um, the, five, the, you know, the infamous five year plans had created this huge, lumbering, inefficient monster producing lots of things that nobody needed um at the wrong time I mean it was just a complete disaster um as the Soviets got further and further behind in pa- around the rest of the world storm clouds were beginning to gather Hitler was doing his thing um it was all beginning to sort of brew up and Stalin realized um at some point in the perhaps the late 30s um certainly as the, as the second world war began that this planned economy that he'd built with huge human cost enormous human cost was not going to be up uh, to face the challenges ahead so the only way for him to progress or even survive was to steal the technology from the more advanced western countries and it was a sim- it was a smash and grab rate it was it was as simple as that um so what he did was going back to the 1930s started to build these networks within all aspects of Western society industry science technology politics economics academia and the military and agents all in those sectors stole secrets and passed them back and we've got the whole um, issue of motivation ideological motivation and that sort of stuff Um, but you know it was a, already a mach- intelligence collecting machine designed to level up the Soviet Union's um, ability. During the Second World War, the biggest secret out there, even bigger than the uh, breaking of the Enigma Code, which um, many people might have heard of, was the work being undertaken by the Manhattan Project, the, um, the project to build the atomic bomb, which was an enormous concern, but one that was done under the most... Extreme secrecy, you can imagine. Stalin, however, learned the project was underway, and knew he had to be part, had to have that information. So, through these efforts to penetrate, uh, in particular, politics and science and academia, he was able to learn all about the bomb as it was happening, almost you know live information. Um, I think when they did the test, the Trinity test. In the um, desert in uh, 1945, the the precursor to the um, Hiroshima bomb. I think he learnt about the results of that bomb only a few days after it happened, which is extraordinary um, to think that sort of level of of knowledge. But anyway, um, he was able to uh, learn about these secrets as they happened in Canada, in the US, in the UK, um, yeah, as they were happening.
0: And it's it's fascinating as well that 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 level of information is able to travel from the middle of America and Canada right across to to Moscow with that such an astonishing level of speed. Mm, and cool. there's yeah, and there's and there's vast amount of information there. You know, you've you've got dossiers, you've got documents. How was these? How were these agents able to feed back this information then?
1: With the atomic spies, you've got. A really challenging thing because the information they're talking about was so complicated it was it was so cutting edge that only perhaps a few people in the world could actually understand it so you tried to get that at being passed down a chain yeah that was really tough the way they did it was um built a structure so it's all about structures and, and infrastructure so basically the the, the, the Key agencies, the KGB and the GRU, they were represented by a resident in the foreign country. In this case, the the US, there was a resident and he he was like the head of station or station chief. He'd be based in the residentura, which would normally be in an embassy or consulate. Uh, In the States, there there was the embassy in Washington and there there was various consulates around the country it's so big and basically gave them intelligence stations all over the country fantastic within these resident tourists there'd be what's known as legal officers so they'd be working under under cover, under diplomatic cover things like trade attache or cultural attache and they would um, so they'd have diplomatic protection Um, and there would also be illegal officers so these would be living under under undercover in the community without any of those protections these legal and illegal officers would recruit agents and they they recruit them from all different parts of society as we've said and the um the officers would in effect be the agents handlers there's lots of vernacular that, that that sort of Props up in the world of espionage. Um, sometimes it's, it's quite interesting to try and keep track of it all. Um, now, the em- embassies, they'd have the means to communicate with Moscow by radio or by um, coded telegrams or diplomatic pouches so you know a diplomatic bag or a diplomatic pouch could be a massive box it could be a shipping container um, but it has diplomatic protection so as part of international law it it cannot be intercepted and that means that information and then material that's important can be shipped from one place to another completely protected by diplomatic uh, um, convention and so um, with our atomic spies yes you had these incredibly complicated formula and information but you also had samples of radioactive material that were smuggled up smuggled out and that they they they, they, went, they were taken and put in a box and sent via this diplomatic pouch it's extraordinary um and so these um Agents would also have couriers who, who would be uh, go-betweens. Um, so, for example, you had um, somebody working in the desert in Los Alamos and there'd be a courier who'd travel to perhaps Santa Fe where they'd meet up, um, either meet up and have a cup of tea together or they'd you know have a covert meet somewhere outside the town. Information would be passed. The scientists would go back to Los Alamos. The courier would disappear back to Washington or wh- wherever, um, and that's how it that's how it went. Um, they would sometimes have uh, clandestine radio, um, so really high-powered, high-tech uh, radio transmitters, and they'd also use clandestine communications such as microdots. So basically, you get a sheet of paper; it gets reduced to, in effect, the size of a full stop, and then that that can get glued into a book on a particular page a particular line and then they removed the microdots and using like a microscope they could uh, read the information so it's very clever techniques and that's what's known as tradecraft now a lot of these names I'm talking about like tradecraft and uh, uh, that's the language of John le Carré in his spy books and it's really interesting how words um, that he came up with in fiction have been adopted by the actual real spy world so tradecraft is, is a classic example but anyway that's the techniques they use to talk between an agent and a handler so it could be a little chalk mark on a uh lamppost or a drawing pin on a bus shelter that would tell the um the agent or the handler that something needs to happen or i need to contact you blah blah blah
0: with all these, you know, all these different tradecrafts going on and, and all these different agents attached to handlers, how do these kind of rings of spies fall apart?
1: Think of a spy network as a house of cards. You know, you build up um, playing cards on top of each other, form this quite substantial structure. All it takes is one card to come out and the whole lot falls down. And so a spy network can look solid it can look safe but it's very fragile so what happens one agent gets caught he um is interrogated he gives up secrets or he's convinced he's, he's um, convinced that he needs to you know sell out his masters um he then in turn implicates somebody else and the network all collapses he, or perhaps a, a a row of dominoes would be another way of describing it you know you knock one domino all the others go um in um in sequence so spies can be caught red-handed you know so yep you're nicked um by vigilant security or counterintelligence but most to be honest are brought down by betrayal where one of their own defects defectors are prime uh sources of uh uh Intelligence, uh, or the ability to break up intelligence networks, um, but um, they opt to cooperate um, in turn in in return for a more lenient punishment, and, and yeah, and that's that's how most of them uh, fell. The First to fall was a British scientist called Alan Nun May, who was revealed to be a Soviet agent in some documents that were taken by a Soviet cipher clerk who defected in, in uh, Canada in, I think it was 40, 45, I think this happened, um, and he was identified and he was arrested and, and nicked. Um, the next big break was the cracking of a diplomatic cipher, so I talked about these embassies talking back to Moscow, well of course the information wasn't sent in plain text, it was carefully encoded, and they used something called a one-time pad, which is still used today, it's, it's a in theory, unbreakable code. You have a, a series of numbers at one end, you have a series of numbers at the other end, and as long as both ends are using the same set of numbers, then sorted. Nobody can can actually um, break that, but where it goes wrong, and in this case, it was a printing error, uh, and, and some of the old books that should have been shredded were sent out to agents and that gave when they when they found that these very clever people who do code breaking they they found that and that was a uh, a key that they could use to get into the code and that happened so they managed to break these diplomatic codes so they were able to, to 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 listen to diplomatic traffic going between the various moscow embassies and consulates back to moscow and that gave them an insight as to what was going on um One of the um, big deals that started breaking up the spy ring was when a cryptographer, uh, Meredith Gardner, the guy was called, um, he partially decoded a message, a 1944 message. So this was 1946, two years after the message was intercepted. It it took him that long before he he could actually get in there. Um, And it listed a load of scientists from Los Alamos, Uh, the the, the manhattan project now why was this diplomat talking to somebody in moscow about these scientists Uh, you know and that started this oh hang on a second perhaps our the biggest secret of the war was actually penetrated um so they began to work with the fbi and they slowly began piecing together the different pieces um, of the atomic spies. And the first of all was a guy called Klaus Fuchs. Now this project to break the code is called Venona, V-E-N-O-N-A, and that doesn't mean anything, but it was just the name given to this immense code-breaking effort and uh, klaus fuchs was a he was a british scientist he was a german um who had escaped nazism a very 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 bright guy was you know spotted for his uh his excellence in in physics and he was brought onto the project all along he was a communist and was working for the project and the soviet union in parallel um and all he, the the way they did it was his code name began to appear in regular messages and they sort of mapped all these messages out and they worked out oh what's he talking about this oh yeah this guy does this oh yeah he does it there he does it then and they literally pieced together in an amazing bit of detective work and they identified that it had to be klaus fuchs because of all these connections so they confronted him and he caved he uh, he, he he sang like a canary uh, because he he realized um that after all these years of Covert living, this double life—that perhaps this was a way out of it—but um, he was arrested um, and uh, convicted and sent to jail. Um, so, with our House of Cards analogy, he was the first card out of the mix, and the rest just tumbled around them. Some spies were caught, some spies defected, and I go through this in the book um, before they—you they, know—they got out just in time, and others, for various reasons, got away scot-free. Just, just completely missed the whole thing and lived out their lives with this massive secret behind them. But they, uh, yeah, they, they they weren't really discovered until after their deaths.
0: It's it's so fascinating that it it just relies on one person not not squealing, one person not um, doing something, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Using that analogy you just mentioned. Now, obviously, if one person gets caught. You get a whole ring that collapses, and and during your book you speak about another kind of event that has a similar effect, called uh, it's an intelligent event called Black Friday. So so what was Black Friday and what was the solution to Black Friday?
1: Well, Black Friday's um, at the core of this Venona project. So they were they were um, intercepting diplomatic traffic and that was going on between. 1942 I think it was and 1948 and uh, this was going on and they were collecting thousands and thousands of messages Um, it was taking them a while to decode them but they were working through it then on Friday the 29th of October 1948 all of a sudden it went dark overnight they changed the Soviets changed their codes somebody had told them that um, the West had broken their diplomatic codes. So what do they do? Completely change the code system. And that that, that blacked out any further collection until they re-broke the code. That was a big problem because um, they were able to, um, well, they were beginning to identify the atomic spies, as we've seen with uh, Klaus Fuchs. But the, they lost this information as to what the Soviets were up to, what their intentions were. And that goes back to one of the core reasons why people want to um, collect intelligence. So, crikey, what do we do? Well, they had to try and find another solution. Um, Basically, there were two people who betrayed the secret. One was a a fairly low level um, uh, guy called William Weisband, he was a linguist employed by the Army Signals Agency who were doing this um translation, you know, this code breaking. And he basically blew the secret to the Soviets. And there's a more famous guy called Kim Philby, who was one of the Cambridge Five. And while he was in Washington, um stationed as SIS station chief in Washington, um, he was able to tell them, listen, guys, they're listening to your traffic, they're listening to your diplomatic traffic. You know, you need to be need to be aware of this. And those two bits of information. Made the the Soviets perk up and basically yeah let's change the codes so big issue for the um, for the West and so they had to try and find another way of picking up information
0: and yet yeah, again it's just it's just fascinating how two people one more important one very lowly can really change the face of uh, of espionage in a night now there's there's one spy that you talk about in your book who I think you bring his story to life and he he sounds like such a fascinating character and that is that is george blake so who was george blake and how did he develop into this fascinating character
1: the story of george blake is it's almost so fantastic you couldn't make it up it's it's an amazing story and I, I think you can probably tell from the book. I I got quite into the story. I quite enjoyed enjoyed writing about it because it is such a good tale. So he was born a guy um, as George Behar B E H A R. He was a son of a Turkish Jew um, father and a Dutch Protestant mother. lived in Rotterdam in Holland. When he was eighteen, so this is this is basically during the war. He was um, reaching the age of majority. All of a sudden, he was going to be arrested for being um, a uh, potential uh alien a, a potential um issue under 18 he, he was left with his family As soon as he turned 18 he was going to be targeted by the authorities so he left rotterdam um, he made this epic journey across war-torn europe he went from rotterdam to paris um, occupied Paris, went down through Vichy, France, which, of course, is a very hostile place. It's basically um, uh, French-governed, but um, uh, governed as puppets for the Nazis. Made his way to Spain, where he got put into a Spanish concentration camp. He managed to get released from there, found his way to Gibraltar, and then caught a, a boat from Gibraltar back to, I think it was Liverpool he came into, Um An epic journey to, you know, he was 18 years old for goodness sake. It took him two years to make this journey. And um, he arrived um took the anglicized name of Blake so it wasn't George Bihar it was George Blake and he joined the Royal Navy he wanted to serve he he his father had served in the first world war for the British uh, so he 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 saw himself as British although he had this extraordinarily Cosmopolitan background he had relatives who were Egyptian he had the the Turkish um element you had the Jewish element you had the Dutch you know he was a very cosmopolitan guy so he joined the Royal Navy Um, but because of his language skills he was very quickly plucked out from being a a sub-lieutenant on a ship somewhere and he got posted to uh, SIS to MI6 Um, and he basically spent the war uh, working for the Dutch section um, then he um, was as They moved as the Allies moved uh, towards Berlin. He went to Holland and operated there for for SIS again. And then he went to Germany and and operated there. After most of his colleagues were demobbed, he uh, decided he would stay on to become a full time intelligence officer. At this stage, he's a loyal uh, British intelligence guy. You know that. Yes, he's got a cosmopolitan outlook more so than his colleagues yes he didn't go to the right schools and that sort of stuff but you know he was he was having this career and they sent him off to learn russian which was obviously a very useful thing
0: you know learning russian he's an incredibly uh talented man how does this man who considers himself british is is such a loyalist how does he become a double agent then
1: um well his first posting so they they teach him russian And then they decide to send him to to Korea. (laughs) So the typical sort of um, uh, British government logic. Um, So he basically was posted to Korea, to the the Seoul embassy, uh, under diplomatic cover. So he was a legal resident, if you like, uh, to use the terminology from before. But his job was to try and gather intelligence on Russia and China. It was a really difficult job. I mean, he was... He, he had yes the Russian tra- language training and he had some basic training but he, he was basically thrown in it. and I think he had had quite a hard time there because um, gathering intelligence on both those both those nations was really difficult, especially from where he was uh, positioned. So when North Korea uh, backed by the Chinese invaded the South in June 1950 um Seoul was overrun. And um, Blake was captured. That the, the British didn't evacuate their people quick enough, and they were captured and they became prisoner. Um, and he had a awful time. I mean, the, the conditions were appalling. Um, they they were force marched hundreds of miles in um, terrible weather conditions. Many of his um, compatriots died. It was it was brutal, but. Over that time, he had a sort of epiphany. He, he became a convert to communism. Um, he was aware of it. He was interested in it. He'd shunned religion um, in an early age, but he sort of latched on to communism as perhaps a new religion, if you like. Um, and eventually, um, he was in a, a camp in North Korea. He, um, he offered his services. He said, I, I want to speak to the, the Russians. And they sent some people in there. And they had some conversations. and He basically voluntarily offered his services. I work for British intelligence. I want to work for you. And it was as, as simple as that. After Stalin had died, they managed to get these guys released. So he, he came back to the UK in 1953, again after this Amazing journey, journey from North Korea, all across the Soviet Union, all across Europe. He, anyway, he, he got back, and was welcomed back into the SIS fold. He was, you know, welcomed back as a as a sort of like a, um, a almost a hero because he would endured uh, and survived this experience. Began his career career again, and while he was doing that, he was passing all his secrets straight to the Soviets.
0: It's it it's such a fascinating tale. The you know going through all these experiences as a young man and as an agent, uh, and then converting, you know, and believing this new kind of religion. But it kind of highlights one thing for me, really. It highlights uh, this this British system and, and its disjointedness. You know, how does the British intelligence system work at this time? Because it doesn't seem to be working quite so well in George Blake's case.
1: No. Uh, well... It's working very well for George Blake, um, simply because um, he was able to um, work under the radar. Basically, the system um, was run on the old school tie principle uh, or the old boys network. What school did you go to? Ah, oh, yes, my people know your people, sort of thing. It was like a gen- gentleman's club, and you know what? One a man's word is his bond. That, that, that's how it was run. Although Blake was a bit of an outsider, he was always thought of as a bit foreign. Um, didn't he? Didn't go to Eton. He didn't go to Oxford. You know, he he'd had this education of in, an incredible exposure to the world, far more than many of these guys had. But he was all a bit. He was just a bit odd. So he was an outlier. He he wasn't one of the guys as such. But he carried on. He, he now had this new family that he was working for, um, and basically the Soviets they saw this creaking system and they exploited it they exploited it fantastically successfully um they placed agents right at the top of government and politics and um you know the the the, the secret services you had so you had the cambridge five who were all at the um height of the establishment you had uh, guy burgess who was a um broadcaster and also worked for the, the um, MI6 you had Kim Philby who was a SIS a real high flyer in SIS you had Donald McLean who worked in the foreign office you had John Cairncross who was he was he was the one of the last to be discovered actually he was a Uh, a senior civil servant but basically um, was the sort of the right-hand man to some very important people and the last was Anthony Blunt who was a art historian of all things but he was very part of the establishment he knew the queen very well he knew the queen mother very well Um, and these were establishment people all true communists and soviet spies so yeah they were they they were very well placed to um make this happen and the system that they worked within the antiquated system of the time was perfect for exploitation
0: it's it's so fascinating to to kind of hear that this system was for a country that prides itself on its organization and so on is is creating a system that is so creaking and and antiquated that it's so easy to exploit uh and there's probably a bit of pride there and a bit of arrogance thinking that it's not going to be exploited
1: yeah very much so um but you know when the soviets changed their codes and you know it went dark black friday they they, they had to get back into the, the the soviet communications they had to find a way of finding out what they were up to and what their intentions were and fundamentally are they about to attack us so they came up with this plan um extraordinary plan um and um i talk about it at length in the book it's again it was one of those ones that got got me interested because uh it was uh yeah definitely worth the researching so berlin um was a four power controlled city so um it was split into four it was run by the soviets the americans the french and the british and they all had different regions um and the americans discovered that the main soviet telephone lines travelled in and out of the city, cl- very close to the sector border between the American sector and the Soviet sector. Um, it's a little village called Old Glienerke. It's you know, just a church and a few houses, nothing, nothing big, but it went along this road that was going down to what became the main airport in East Berlin. Um, and a few feet under the ground was this cluster of cables through which all this mass of telephone and data, what we call data now, what they called it back then was t- um, telegraph, you know, um, communication was going on a few feet underground. So they came up with this plan to basically dig a tunnel under the border. At the moment, there was no Berlin Wall, you know, we're talking a few years before the Berlin Wall. So they basically dig a tunnel under this um board uh, that wasn't fenced in, in any way find the cables and tap them and this project was called Operation Gold so what they did was they bought a patch of land opposite Altglienacre a place called Rudo uh, R-U-D-O-W I'm pronouncing it badly um, they built this large warehouse um, from where the tunnel was built and they what they did was they in effect dug a hole to fill with soil so, in the basement of this huge warehouse, they dug it all out, creating this massive void, this sort of false floor, and, and they then started digging down. And all the spoil from the tunnel was piled up inside the warehouse, and the warehouse was disguised as a SIGINT a ba- um, collection station. So basically, listening to radio traffic of the uh, of the aircraft moving around. So that was it was like um, doing it in plain sight. So. Um, they began this tunnel. It was a huge operation, all done in total secrecy. You know, it was one of the other big secrets, Um, but involved thousands and thousands of people all working in compartmentalised so that the secret could be controlled. They began digging in September 1954. So basically, uh, Blake was back and he was back working for for SIS again. And they finished tunneling in February 55 and they made the first tap the following month. And then over the next three or four months, they managed to tap all the the cables. And it was done by the, uh, so the the digging was done by the American engineers. The actual phone tapping was done by the post office, the British post office, because they had these very high tech skills that they could go into a cable, intercept it without letting anybody know. It was ultra, ultra secret. anyway so the mess the phone calls and these telegraph messages all of a sudden started flowing in by the thousand literally every phone call was being listened to and they had banks and banks and banks of tape recorders they also had uh, basically um, machines that would uh, interpret the telegraph messages so it was basically streams of data that they had to then try and decode and they had this massive operation in London um, and in Washington DC where the information would be processed, it would be transcribed, it would be translated, it would be decoded, analysed. It was, it was huge. And this operation went on and on and on. Um, the um, irony behind the whole thing is that Blake had betrayed the secret of the tunnel to the soviets before they dug the first spade and it basically told them listen guys they're about to tap your um cables he was involved in the meeting between the Americans and the British which decided how they were going to run the project he, he literally took the minutes of the meeting that was his job gave one set to the uh the team to you know the uh the 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 uh operation gold people took another copy and gave it to the Soviets so they knew everything the problem was if they basically in, intercepted this tunnel it would have the only person who perhaps could have um, Um, betrayed the whole thing would have been Blake and so the Soviets were faced with this awful challenge if we basically discover this this tunnel it could lead to our star agent being caught now given the fact that um, Burgess and McLean had um already been discovered they um they they, they'd defected um, a few years previously um Kim Phil Kim Philby had been sidelined because of his connection with Burgess and McLean um and you know a few years later he would actually be arrested or attempted to be arrested before he defected um so Blake was their star um in fact his code name was Diamond uh, because he was that valuable to the Soviets um so they had to protect him and the, the only way they could protect him was to let this process, let this intelligence gathering run. It's a, a very courageous decision, um, and it was, but it was worth. It was a price, a price worth paying if it meant that he remained undiscovered.
0: And it's again, it's fascinating how the Russians have been faced with that decision, um, and it shows the fragility of these systems that they rely upon one man. Now. Obviously, Blake has, you know, given this system up to to the Russians. Do they ever act upon that information?
1: Well, after a year, uh, just 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 under a year, actually, they decided that the deception had run its course. That they'd they'd sort of um, given as much as they could give, and then they arranged that for the the taps to be accidentally discovered by East German telecoms engineers that there, there were faulty lines because of rainwater and that sort of stuff. And that, that was the excuse. Um, so then basically, you know, it, a bit like Black Friday, all of a sudden phew, it just stopped the, the operation. Um, and the Soviets and East Germans had this media frenzy. They had this uh, massive propaganda thing, um, you know, um, projecting their outrage to the world's media, uh, the world's media, obviously the, the um, Warsaw Pact media shouted from the from on high, what a terrible liberty, what a crime, blah, blah, blah. The Western media thought, oh, actually, yeah, fair play. <laughs> good, good on the Americans and British for actually bringing about this coup. So, you know, it was the the battle lines were, were, were being drawn quite nicely between the two sides there. Um, so th- basically... Blake managed to survive this operation. Nobody was able to put a connection to Blake. And he he carried on with his spying. Um, in early 1961, um, basically this, this secret um guy, he he um started to talk to Western intelligence and he started passing them quite solid intelligence. Um he was given the codename of Sniper. Um, and he he began to suggest that there was a agent within SIS, and an agent was within uh, the Admiralty, the the, the the Royal Naval Admiralty. Um, and what happened was they started to do some investigations. George Blake was cleared; he was, you know, th- there was no suspicion about him. Um, and then in early 1961, this guy sniper decides I'm going to defect. And so all of a sudden chaos breaks loose because this, this guy's um, basically defecting and very soon they begin to um, put Blake and the tunnel and other, other incidents uh, that he betrayed together. And all of a sudden, again, very good detective work. They began to put the pieces together and Blake increasingly went and, um, became, became a suspect and, um, he was basically arrested. Uh, he was sent to trial um, and convicted in in May 1961, and he was sentenced to this extraordinary 42 year sentence, which at the time was, I think, the longest sentence anybody had, had ever given. Um, so we got this guy who started off in in Holland as an 18 year old, had this amazing adventure um, across Europe, then became a spy, went to Korea, got captured, converted, and then all of a sudden now he finds himself uh as in prison the story doesn't end there uh which again is part of this fantastic story he escapes he escapes from Wormwood scrubs in october 1966 extraordinary story he then gets smuggled uh with some uh left-leaning uh, sort of activists who basically take george blake in take him across the channel in a, a hidden compartment in a camper van drive him to towards uh berlin and just before they get to west berlin they stop he jumps off and gives himself up and defects so this story's gone massive story arc and all of a sudden now blake has now defected and basically he lived well he lived into his 90s he only died in in 2020 um you know so this this story has started in 1939 and, and has gone right through to 2020 he was living in his dacha, just outside Moscow, and died uh, an old man, unrepentant, uh, still viewed as a hero. It's
0: it's 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 fascinating. You can see how relevant this history is to today, uh, and you can see that it still has an effect on today. Now, there's some interesting things there about uh, Blake and his handing over information. We've already we've already touched on it, uh, and it's that that term of tra- uh, tradecraft, which I hmm. find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you know, I really want to touch on it and talk about you know how these spies operated or and their tradecraft. So, would you mind just unpacking some of that?
1: Yeah, um, the tradecraft, as I said, is is not a word that was used by the spies themselves until John Le Carré wrote about it in his books. So, but anyway, um, this is the stuff that um, gets everybody excited because because it, it's it's the closest we get to James Bond. Um, Your tradecraft involves Gizmos and gadgets. It involves um, ways of communicating. There's something called Moscow rules that you might have heard about. okay Moscow rules is another John Le Carre um, word or phrase, uh, but basically describes um, working to very ultra strict communication protocols. And again, Moscow rules is now accepted within the spy spy community as meaning something. So again, yeah, fiction meets uh, meets meets fact, but. Tradecraft um is the way the way these agents would try and interact with their handlers or couriers. Um and I think we, we we talked about a few of the bits and bobs um uh as we've gone through. Um you get sort of quite high-tech communication devices where a message is recorded, a voice message is recorded, and then condensed into a very fast burst transmission it could be a data transmission as well so not just voice but data as well and you you get a, a burst of just a couple of seconds of transmission it then gets picked up at the other end and then gets slowed down and it becomes a a, a, a readable message we've talked about the micro dots we've talked about the the chalk marks and the drawing pins but that leads to things like dead drops so a mark on a certain lamppost at a certain time would tell the handler that the spy has put some information in the dead drop and the dead drop is a uh, uh, a a place it could be um, a brick in the side of a building that's loose so the spy would basically go along. He'd he'd stash his photos or his information or whatever inside this hiding place. Put the brick back. He'd then go and put this mark on the uh, lamppost. The agent would sorry yeah the agent or courier would be looking for this. He'd see the message. He'd go okay. He'd then go at another time back to this uh, brick wall. He'd re- remove the brick. He'd take the message out and pass it on to the uh, to, to the um, residentura or whatever to to pass it on and that's how they operated um, and they went to great lengths to reconnoitre the uh the environment they um, there's a good story um to do with a guy called penkovsky who's one of the one of the um the the, the western uh double agents supplying secrets to the west but the um cia actually uh, they were looking at a radiator in this hallway of a building, and they wanted to get a box that could be stuck behind the radiator. So they, they got a sample of the paint of the of the radiator, matched the colour back in uh, the, the US, painted this little box exactly the same colour as the radiator. So then then the, the agent could, you know, the handler, could plonk this box behind behind the thing and it wouldn't be seen. So then Penkovsky, as the spy, would go along surreptitiously remove the box and move on that sort of interaction that's the that's what we call tradecraft and there's a whole load of techniques um, that can be used um to uh to, to to do that it's also how they identify themselves um some of it sounds quite comical it's um you know you will see this guy come into the pub he will be wearing uh, this particular outfit he will be carrying three gloves in one hand and a tennis ball you know it's I say it flippantly, but that was the sort of stuff that was done. And, and you you'd use that what would be bizarre behavior as a way of identifying who who the who the person was. And that that's how it went on for, you know, for years. And that's 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 tradecraft.
0: It's it's an area of the work, like you said, you know, because of these interests with James Bond, it's something that people want to know about. And it is so fascinating hearing about these. These little secrets and and the the time and the money that they dedicated towards doing that you know paint matching is not a it's not an easy job i was uh, surprised
1: at how much prep that they they, they they put into it so they'd they'd know exactly how many lampposts there were between a and b they they they'd know which lamppost wasn't working they'd know you know which buildings were in shadow at which times of the day, and uh, you know which pavements were busy or quiet. And you know it was—I was surprised at how much information was uh, was known. I, I, I sort of expected expected to be a bit more casual, but no, no, they rehearsed absolutely everything.
0: And, and it's just—it's just really fascinating that level of detail, isn't it? And I just want—you uh, know—a lot of these these figures that we've been talking about have been. Mainly assisting the Soviets and assisting the communist missions. You know, how many examples, or you know, did they even exist? That double, oh, we've spoken about a couple of them actually. Even, even sniper. You know, did many double agents exist that benefited the West? The um,
1: you've got to think about the different environment. Um, I think we we would we talk about it earlier. It's just the, the 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 completely different existence of living in the West versus living in the East. Yes, you've got competing ideologies. Yes, you've got competing uh, economic systems, but the um, the police state that operated in most of the Warsaw Pact, in most of the Eastern Bloc was all consuming. There were spies on every corner. I mean, and, and when you look at places like East Germany, there literally were spies on, <laughs> on almost every corner. The, the number of people working for the state and passing information on was unbelievable. Um, But working within the Soviet Union, it was a very, very hostile environment to operate. Um, And in the West, obviously, I suppose the West puts freedom of expression, freedom of movement, uh, freedom of thought uh, at the the heart of what you call a, a Western democracy. So therefore, for a Soviet spy to operate in the West, it was a lot easier. He, he could operate um, pretty freely, he could, if he wanted to know what was happening with the uh, army, he'd buy a magazine, Stars and Stripes, and it would tell them, <laughs> he's go, you know, he, he could find all that information free, in the Soviet Union, they were state secrets, so it was a very different place to work, and um, so operating as, as a double agent, or as a, as a, A spy placed in the Soviet Union was very very dangerous Uh, famous one is Oleg Penkovsky who was a a GIU officer who uh, basically I think got a bit fed up with the um, ideology that was going on in the uh, early 60s he 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 felt that, that the Soviet system was wrong and basically he wanted to do do something to uh, support the West. So it, he offered his services. So a bit like Blake offering his services to the, the, the KGB in Korea. Um, Oleg Penkovsky offered his services to the CIA uh, in the Moscow and it took a while for the CIA to actually... Um, <laughs> engaged with him they thought it was provocation to start with and they in effect ignored it but he kept going he kept writing these impassioned letters uh, and managed to get them to the US by he intercepted some teachers some American teachers who were on holiday in Moscow they were walking across the bridge sightseeing he heard they were speaking English he went up to them just think of the danger involved in this and said will you please pass this letter to the CIA and then walked off um, and then eventually that they, they took it seriously they sent a courier a guy called Greville Wynn and if you've seen the film The Courier with Benedict Cumberbatch and a few others um, that's all about Oleg Penkovsky and Greville Wynn um, so they sent a courier out to him and they began this dialogue and he was prolific he was passing information across on a epic scale um he was unstoppable and so much so they almost had to tell him to slow down but he was no he was passionate about uh trying to defeat communism so much so that during the cuban missile crisis um he was able to uh basically provide kennedy with information on how these missiles that were based in cuba worked so so basically that the Americans could understand what sort of timings they were dealing with, how they would loaded, all this sort of stuff. Really important intelligence. So Penkovsky was at the heart of that. Um, and Greville Wynne was his courier. They went back and forth, and Penkovsky, in his duties as a GIU officer, actually was able to come to Europe and to the UK. And um, this sort of went on and on and on, um, up to the day where, basically, Penkovsky was was discovered. And I think he was just... Over prolific. He 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 put himself out there too much and was discovered and was went through a show trial and was executed. Simple as that. Um Greville Wynne was also arrested and he went through a show trial and was imprisoned and eventually came back on a spy swap. So um yeah, working as a spy in that Soviet bloc was very, very dangerous.
0: Now this was a fascinating conversation that I had with Andrew, and it was the first half of the conversation I had with him. If you want to listen to the second part where we talk about context of the period, talking about Germany, the Berlin blockade, and how to find Andrew, where to get his books, and the discount that he has on offer, listen to part two with Andrew where we discuss all of these things. But if you don't head to that, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Andrew.